one of my closest friends. 40 years ago, Pakistani came to America to study. He went back to Pakistan and things were very difficult in Pakistan. And I said, brother, you know they're going to kill you. You know they're going to kill you. And he said, we've settled that question already. We died before we got there. And they killed him and his wife, cold-blooded. His name was Arif Khan, my dear friend. He paid a great price because he truly was following Christ. The preacher's life is the most important thing. He must be truly converted, but listen carefully. Number two, in your own life and in your preaching to others, we must be a growing, committed disciple. A growing, committed disciple. You know, the Bible only mentions the word Christian three times. Do you know where that is? The Bible only mentions the word Christian three times. It says in Acts, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Uh, where's another case? First Peter 4. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him in that name glorify God. And another? The preacher. Agrippa, was it not? Are you in such a short time seeking to make me a Christian? Probably in all three times the words were spoken in a negative manner of ridicule. But in the Gospels and the book of Acts, the primary name for the Christian was a disciple. A disciple. And when Jesus called men to follow him, he called them to be disciples. And I want to talk to you briefly about your own life and your own preaching as you preach to others and as you examine your own life. Are we growing as true disciples? A man must be truly converted, and as a result of true conversion, he will be a disciple. So, turn with me then in a very familiar passage in the Gospel of Luke. We're talking about the preacher's life, and we're talking about his preaching, what he is supposed to live, and when he preaches to others, what he calls them to. Now, I've been in Asia for about 24 years. And I understand in the afternoon when rice, a lot of rice, hits the belly. <laughs> Strange things begin to happen. So we need to pray God would give us grace to listen. Rice in the belly, plus afternoon class, plus an old preacher, <laughs> equals sleep. <laughs> so, we'll pray that God would help us. Luke 14. 
Very familiar passage. Let me get my glasses again. I believe it's about verse 25, is it? And great crowds were going along behind him. You and I must be growing disciples. And when we preach to others, we must call them to be disciples as well. Now let me introduce this passage by two things, uh, defining what a disciple is and then saying what the goal of a disciple is. Now you know, uh, a disciple is what we call a learner, a student, a pupil. That's what the word means, a learner, a student, a pupil. He is someone that attaches himself to a leader. Uh, Moses had uh, Joshua. Elijah had Elijah. John the Baptist had his disciples. Jesus, of course, had many disciples, some real, some not real. Uh, Mohammed had disciples. Hindu priests have disciples. Buddhist monks have young disciples. They are people that attach themselves to a leader, to a teacher. And a disciple has three characteristics, three characteristics of a disciple. Number one, he listens to his master's voice. He has shut out all other noises. He is committed to one voice, one master. He listens to his master's voice. Number two, he submits to his master's authority. Uh, he submits to his master's authority. And number three, he follows his master's example. He listens to his voice. He submits to his authority. And he follows his example. You remember Jesus put it this way in the upper room. Uh, he laid aside his garments and he washed his disciples' feet. And then when he was finished, he put his clothing back on and he said, Do you know what I have done to you? Now listen carefully. He said, you call me teacher and you call me Lord. I give you an example that you should do as I do. You call me teacher. That is, you listen to my voice. You call me Lord. That is, you should submit to my authority. Uh, I give you an example that you follow in my footsteps. A disciple is someone that listens to one voice, submits to one authority, and follows one primary example. That is a disciple. You understand what we're saying? What's the goal of discipleship? I believe it's Luke 12 or Luke 9. Every pupil, after he is fully trained, what? Becomes like his teacher. Every pupil, after he's fully trained, becomes like his teacher. The goal of a disciple is to become progressively more and more conformed to the life of his master, Jesus Christ. So the question is this, men, are we listening to one voice? There are many voices in the world, on the TV, the internet, your own inward voice, the voice of family, the voice of friends. There are many, many voices. 
but my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. A true disciple makes every decision based upon the words of his master. What does Christ say? What does God say? What does the Bible say about my business, about my money, about my marriage, about my children, about my motives, about my ministry? What does the Word of God say? A disciple hears one voice, and he submits to one authority. Now, there are multiple authorities in this world, and of course, he submits to government, and we submit to one another in the fear of Christ and things of that nature. But he has one Lord, one master, he submits to one authority, and while we follow many other examples, our highest example is our Savior. So the Lord calls us here in Luke 14, calls all people to a life of serious discipleship. Let me point out then, first of all, several characteristics of the call to discipleship. Characteristics of the call. Now don't let that rice set too heavy on your belly. Now large crowds, number one, verse 25, were going along with them and he turned and said to them, listen carefully, the call of Christ is universal to everyone, not select to a few chosen ones. You understand what I'm saying? He didn't turn and say this, all right, uh, those of you that want to be a disciple, I want you to go over here and wait. And those of you that just want to be saved, or want some loaves and some fishes, uh, we'll give you this. You fill out a card and you go home. He didn't do that. He turned and he spoke to everyone. The call of Christ is not just for preachers. It's not just for missionaries. It's for all Christians. It is universal in its call, not selective to a chosen few. You understand what we're saying? Look quickly at number two, verse 26. If any man comes to me, compare that with verse 27. Whoever does not carry his own coat and come after me. Come to me and come after me. Listen carefully. Coming to Christ for salvation and coming after Christ in obedience go together. Now, as we heard this morning, you are not to confuse one with the other. Your discipleship does not save you. Your obedience does not save you. But if you come to Christ, He will work in your heart and you will come after Him. So coming to Christ and coming after Him came in the same call to discipleship. You understand what we're saying? Now, we don't confuse them. We don't tell people, look, if you uh, don't come after Christ and obey Him, you cannot gain or maintain your salvation. We're not saying that. But we're saying if you are truly converted and you come to Christ for salvation, He will so work in your heart that you will begin to follow Him. You understand what we're saying? So the call of Christ is to come to Him and to come after Him. Let me give you another characteristic of the call. Listen carefully. He wasn't interested in drawing a crowd. He was interested in determining the committed. He wasn't interested in drawing a crowd. 
he was interested in determining who was committed. A lot of preachers want a big crowd. And of course, we want to see many people come to Christ. But we do not sacrifice or water down the demands of Christ in order to increase the numbers. And that is the fourth characteristic. He didn't compromise the conditions in order to increase the numbers. So in the very beginning, listen carefully, it was a call to everyone to come not only to him, but to come after him. And it was that which we said number three was what? Exactly. He was interested in determining the committed among the crowd. Now, you know, in a lot of cases, I say in some cases, it said uh, some of his disciples said this is a difficult statement. Who can bear it when he said you must eat my flesh and drink my blood if you want to be my disciple? And they said this is a difficult statement. Who can bear it? And as a result of this, most of his disciples they were would-be temporary disciples, uh, said, this is too difficult. We're going home. We don't want to hear this. And he turned and said to Peter, do you want to go? If you want to leave, now is the time to go. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die on a cross. I will be delivered into the hands of sinful men. And if you're going to follow me, you must be willing to count the cost. You must be willing to pay the price. And so Jesus made it very plain that he wasn't interested in simply increasing the numbers. So those are the basic characteristics by way of introduction of his call to discipleship. So here's the question, men. Are you preaching this to others? There's no two levels of Christian life. There's a life of commitment to Christ that is a slow, certain growth coming out of the new birth. But if you don't have the root, you will not have the fruit. When a man builds a house, where does he begin? Does he begin with the roof? Where does he begin? The foundation. If the foundation is not good, the house will not stand. Jesus said, a man who hears these words and obeys them is like a man that built his house on a rock. And the rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and the house stood because it was founded on a rock. Another man built his house on the sand. He didn't listen to the word of God. And the rains fell and the winds came and the house fell and great was the fall. And our Christian life, now I'm not talking about uh, our preaching. In the Christian life, the foundation is true conversion. And if the foundation is there, God, by the Spirit of God over time, will begin to build the building. You understand what we're saying? Right, those are four characteristics of the call. Let me give you three conditions. Three conditions. Three conditions of Christ's call to discipleship. Number one, notice verse 26. You must love Christ more than anyone. You must love Christ more than anyone. If anyone comes to me, verse 26, doesn't hate his own father, mother, wife, and children, and brothers and sisters, yea, even his own life, 
he cannot be my disciple. Now, you know, Jesus is speaking strong words here, and we know that we are not to hate, literally, our family members. But he's saying uh, in another passage, if anyone loves family more than he loves me, he cannot be my disciple. In comparison to our love for Christ, our love for family should be secondary. That is, we love him more than anyone. And you know, in this part of the world, one of the greatest pressures upon young converts is their family. Their family puts tremendous pressure on them. They are ostracized. They are kicked out of the family. The family doesn't understand them. The father disowns them. Even his wife may turn against him. No one will truly, truly understand. Jesus knew that, and he talked a lot about the family, and he exemplified it in his own family. He was sitting once preaching in a house. It was full, you remember? His mothers and brothers and sisters were outside, and they wanted to speak to him. Why did they want to speak to him? Exactly. The previous context said they came to get him because he thought he had lost his mind. They didn't understand at that point her son, Mary. They didn't understand at that point his brothers, their older brother. They thought he had lost his mind, and they came to get him to take him away. And someone said, uh, Jesus, your mother, brother, sisters are outside waiting to speak to you. Well, what did he say? Who are my mothers and brothers and sisters? Whoever hears and obeys the word of God, that is my mother and brother and sister. Now, he was committed to his mother. You remember on his death, John was standing there with his mother Mary. And he told Mary, behold your son. Told John, behold your mother. And from that point on, John took Mary into his home to care for her. Jesus knew that family relations were some of the greatest challenges to Christian commitment. And he is saying, if you don't love me more than your own family. Now listen carefully, when a person becomes a Christian, he certainly should love his wife more, right? He certainly should love his children more. He certainly should be more committed to being a good father, a good husband. But hear me carefully, when a man becomes a Christian, Jesus said, sometimes I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. And the members of one's house may be your own enemies. I came to divide fathers against sons and daughters-in-laws against mother-in-laws. And the, your members of your own house may be your enemies. So when you preach to people, you need to tell them that Christ calls you to love him more than anyone. And in so doing, it may cost you your relationship with your family. I was in China for over 20 years, and I saw a lot of this. Family in China is everything. And if you go against your family, community is everything. And for someone to take a stand and step out of family and step out of community, it will cost him greatly many, many times. But Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, 
You must love me more than anyone. So here's the question we ask ourselves, first of all, is there anyone in this life that you love more than the Savior, your wife, your children? The story of a young woman, a young mother in Scotland, Scotland, in the United Kingdom, many years ago, she professed faith in Christ and the Catholic Church, as well as the organized church, put her in jail and they took her little baby away. And she would not admit that in the Lord's Supper, the bread, the wafer, the Catholic Church says literally becomes the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. They came to her cell. They held that baby up in front of her. Baby crying, Mama, Mama, Mama. They said, all you have to do is say that Christ is in that bread. That's all you have to do. Say that Christ is right there. <coughs> that when the priest speaks in Latin, that the bread becomes the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. If you don't, you'll never see your baby again. She said, I will not. And she never saw her baby again. My friend, hear me. If you're going to follow Christ, sometimes he'll wrench your heart out. But he says, if you love me, you must love me more than anyone. You love anyone more than the Savior? We can't see him. But Peter said, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Jesus knew what it meant to be misunderstood by his family. Paul knew what it meant to be misunderstood by his family. And if you're going to follow Christ, it may be, it may not be. God may wonderfully convert all of your family. But many times that's not the case. I know a woman came from a very wealthy, wealthy family. Her father was a famous governor in America. And she wanted to go overseas to be a missionary. And he didn't want her to go. And he said, if you go overseas, You'll not have any inheritance. You'll not have any family. And everything here you will lose. But she went overseas and she lost everything. Now, I've been married to that woman for 52 years. <laughs> and she paid a great price. Who do you love? We must love the Savior. Quickly, number two, we're talking about the conditions of discipleship. Verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, you know, there are two crosses in the Christian life. There are two crosses. One is the cross of Christ. You can't carry that cross. Only he could carry that cross because on that cross he bore the weight and the guilt of sin and suffered the wrath of God. And he said, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, 
not what I will, but what thy will. That cross is too heavy for us. He alone could bear it. That cross, that cross slayed him and killed him. But in that death, he brought life. That is the cross of salvation. That is the cross of redemption. That is the cross of propitiation. That is the cross of reconciliation. That is the cross we preach. That is the power of God to salvation. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I'm not ashamed of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the gospel cross. You can't carry it. Hey, but there's another cross. That's your cross. Jesus said, if anyone comes, does not carry his own cross. Now, in the, Old in the New Testament, what did the cross represent? A lot of people wear a cross around their neck. That's okay. They have a cross tattooed on their arm. That's okay. But don't wear it if you're not going to carry it. <laughs> Listen carefully. If you were living in Palestine or a Roman city in the first century and you were eating supper one night and you heard a big crowd go by and you looked out the window and hear a bunch of Roman soldiers going by and then here's a big crowd hollering and cheering and behind the soldiers are 10 men carrying a cross. Now where are they going? They're not going to have a party. They were going to die. And that cross killed them. The cross was an instrument of death. And what Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die on a cross. And if any man comes after me, he must take up his own cross and he must follow me or he cannot be my disciple. He dies to self, dies to self-righteousness. He dies to the world. He dies to the friendship, if necessary, of family and others. He dies to everything in this world, and he lives to God. He takes up the cross, and he follows him, not as one act one day, but he said, you take up your cross daily, and you follow me. It's a matter of slow but sure, spirit-empowered, love-motivated, law-directed obedience in following Jesus Christ in carrying our own cross. Now hear me carefully, you carrying your own cross does not add to your salvation. You carrying your cross is the evidence and the fruit that you have been saved. And anyone that has seen the first cross, he'll willingly out of love embrace the second cross. So that's a condition of following Christ. And this is not necessarily meaning like my friend Arif Khan dying in Pakistan. But sometimes it's harder to die daily than it is to die once. To die in our home as husbands. Listen, men, your wife is not your cook to prepare food. She's not your concubine to give you sex. She's not your nanny to take care of your children. She's not your cleaner to clean up your house. She's your wife. You're to love her as Christ loved the church. And you're to give yourself for her. Now in this part of the world, that is strange. India, Nepal, even here, I see the big Indian man, the big Pakistani man, 
of the big Hindu man from down the street. And behind him, about 10 feet, his little wife. That's not to be that way among us. The second greatest testimony behind your own life is your marriage. Do you love your wife? Do you lay down your life for your wife? Is your home not your castle where you reign as king, but your Calvary where you die daily? Listen carefully. Over our whole life is to be the shadow of the cross. Not only his cross, but our cross. So that's a condition of discipleship. You love him more than anyone and you take up your cross and you follow him. Skip down quickly to verse 33. Third condition. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. That is, you're not living for this world. You're not living for money. You're not living for a car. You're not living for a bigger house. You're not living for better clothes. You're not living for the approval of people. Other people's security is in this life. Our security is in another world. Our security is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're not laying up for ourselves treasures on earth. We're seeking to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And we're not seeking to store up things for ourselves. There's many a preacher that has a secret love for money and desires it. And that's why this prosperity gospel you're talking about is so attractive that if you come to Jesus, he'll make you rich. If you come to Jesus, you'll never be sick. If you come to Jesus, your business will prosper. If you come to Jesus, you'll never have any problems in the world. Jesus said, if you come to me, you'll have tribulations in this life. And so they preach a false gospel. We don't buy into that. We don't believe it. We're not seeking that. We're not preaching that. We're seeking to lay up treasures in heaven. And we're trying to tell people, look, if you come to Christ, he will forgive you of your sins. He will pardon all of your guilt. He will give you a new heart. You'll be adopted into the family of God. You'll have heaven as your home and spiritual treasures in heaven. Almost people, <laughs> I can't see that. I can see the car. I can see the house. I can see the money. But I can't see that. But Paul said the things that you can see are temporary. The things that are unseen are eternal. And we're seeking to live for the things that you cannot see. So the question is this, men and women, is there anyone of us in this room that has an unmortified desire for the things of this world? I know another young man. He was a famous athlete. Everywhere he went, people wanted to take his picture and get his autograph. He had lots of money, big car, big house, played professional American football. But he wanted to be a missionary. 
and everyone thought he was a fool. And that old man is right here. And I don't have a whole lot in this world. But we have a hope in heaven. And we're seeking to lay up treasures in heaven. If you follow Jesus Christ, you've got to lay it all on the altar. All on the altar. My life, my children, my wife, my money, my house, my car. Lord, I lay it on the altar. I give it up. I take my hands off of it. I give it to you. You take away what I don't need. You give me what I do need. I don't care about anything in this life. God often chooses the poor, the weak, the nobodies of this world in order that he get a greater glory. Are we content, as Paul said, with what we have? Are we content with what we have? He said, if you have food and covering, with this we should be content. We brought nothing into the world. We shall take nothing out of the world. And so, brethren, let us be satisfied. If we really believe there's a life after death, if we really believe there's a judgment to come, if we really believe there's a heaven and a hell, if we really believe that in our heart, then we will go through this world with a loose, 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 loose grasp and a passing glance. Because we want to lay hold of that which is life indeed. And we are not turning to the left and to the right, being attracted by the things of the world. Men and women, have we laid it all on the altar? A true Christian will do that. Now, lots of starts and lots of stops, lots of difficulties, lots of challenges. Sometimes in the walk of discipleship, you go three steps forward, sometimes two steps back. But if you're a true child of God, he will persevere and keep you and guard you and watch over you and help you to continue until the end. He that endures to the end shall be saved. Your endurance does not save you. He's given the evidence of those that have been saved. You endure to the end. You shall be saved. Hear me carefully. Our life must be a testimony of loving him more than anyone, of taking up that cross in practical ways, of holding this world like this, everything in it, open hands. Lord, you take out and put in whatever you want. I want your will, no matter the cost, no matter the consequence. That's why Jesus said, look, you better sit down and you better count the cost. You remember James and John came with their mother, an ambitious mother that wanted her sons to get glory. Said, Lord, uh, we have a request we want to ask of you. He said, what is it? And he said, well, it's, it's not a big thing, but when you come into your glory, uh, on your left and on your right, can James and John sit there? He said, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? What did they say? Sure. No problem. What happened to James? He lost his head. What happened to John? 
He got sent far, far, far away as an old man on the Isle of Patmos. They drank the cup. And they were baptized with the baptism with which he was baptized. But they didn't understand in the beginning what it would cost. So then you better sit down. You better count the cost. Because the Christian world is full of half-finished buildings that were never completed, that are hollow and empty and a testimony to false conversion, easy believism, a weak gospel. The root of it all is a solid foundation based on gospel truth, which you must clearly preach so that people can understand in their head, believe in their heart, and entrust with their life. And when they do that, they have a new heart. They have a new nature. They have a new disposition. And the love of Christ constrains them. And the Spirit of God empowers them. And the law of God guides them in the way of holiness all the way to the end. But it begins with you living and preaching this clear message so that people could understand and truly believe and take up their cross and follow Christ. Well, let's pray. Our Father, we hear that voice, that voice of our Savior coming down the corridors of time. And we want to be your growing disciples. We don't want to be empty men and women. We don't want to be fakes. We don't want to be hypocrites. We want to be real. We thank you for your grace and your love that motivate and empower our walk of discipleship. Help me, Lord, and help my brothers and sisters here to determine with fresh conviction, no matter the cost, no matter the consequence, that we would follow our Savior until the end and we would see him in glory and we would hear those words that are more blessed than 10,000 praises from men well done thy good and faithful servant help us to that end and strengthen us by your power and let us preach clearly to others these things we ask in Jesus name Amen, Amen.